Hey everybody, before we get stuck into episode 6 of Tender, I just wanted to remind you that if this is the first episode you've listened to, stop and go back. Tender is chronological, so there'll be people you haven't met yet if you listen now, which could be a little bit confusing. It is a Friday evening and Paul and I are staying in Cranbourne, a suburb situated about an hour from Melbourne in Victoria's southeast. Cranbourne is a township close to where my parents live and Paul and I are designated house sitters while they are away. Given this, the two of us decide to order takeout from a newly opened Chinese restaurant on High Street. Over cold vegetarian dumplings and broccoli blanketed in garlic sauce, we watch a terrible rom-com in bed. And it's then that Paul says, I love you. And I am thrilled. I love him too. The last four or five months have been exceptional to say the least. But I'm also realistic. I know that when the two of us say love and mean it, we invite a kind of lazy domesticity into our relationship. We essentially sign a contract that permits us to be frustrated at one another over trivial things every so often. Like what to cook on a Tuesday night or whether or not I or he put the bins out last or who should drive to so-and-so's party and who should drink. Each moment longer spent with Paul meant the likelihood of getting sour or obviously tired or bitter sometimes. It meant we couldn't float in the suspended place of euphoria that so many relationships start as, high in the clouds, perpetually happy. I know what you're thinking. How naive of me to think that I can just waft and flow on through Expecting the two of us to never argue, to never grow as people together, to never have to compromise with one another, to just roll around in a sexed, loved-up stupor, a romance that never fills out. But we're beyond that now, because we love each other. And love sometimes looks like this. Rachel, come on, talk to me, please! I can't even look at you right now. I said I made my choice. What is it? You, You feel bad because your husband isn't here? Because that was his choice. Don't. He chose not to stay here. It's, it's like he left you. You know, he could have stayed, but he chose to leave you. You don't know what you're saying. You should be mad at him, not whipping yourself with guilt. Get off me. You can't see it. How can you smoke in this day and age? Have you not seen that ad? Huh, where the little kid walks through grandpa? It's chilling. I messed up. It was a meeting. Everybody was smoking. So what? Don't you have any willpower? Like Rachel and Ross and Monica and Chandler from Friends and Yorkie and Kelly from Black Mirror and Carrie and Big from Sex in the City and my own parents who bicker and snap at one another and do what normal couples do. But for somebody that has been in an abusive relationship, arguments feel like sirens, like warning signs, like the calm before the storm. And it's then that I realise that after leaving Theo, I don't actually know how to argue in a healthy way. So it's time, I think, to head back to the drawing board. And that involves reflecting on things that made Theo mad. And trying to figure out if they're normal things. If they're things that will follow me into this relationship. If there are arguments I can avoid with Paul if I just focus. Just a warning folks, I will be from here reading extracts from past message threads and diary entries that detail Theo's behaviour. 
They might be confronting to hear, but they capture the essence of why arguing is so turbulent and strange for people like me, who have been conditioned to believe that normal things and behaviours like buying a can of coke or sleeping in occasionally if you hadn't had enough of a rest are punishable. By reading these extracts, I'm trying to highlight how ingrained it is that those of us who are in abusive relationships are sure that we're bad and that bad people need discipline. 13th of December, 2015, 11.04pm. I'm not allowed to spend my money on certain things. I spend too much time applying makeup and doing my hair. He says it's a waste. He doesn't like it when I spend too much time on social media. He doesn't like it when I contact my parents. He doesn't like certain friends and family. We argue about the fact that he doesn't like hanging out with me publicly because people don't actually see the real me, he says. He says they think I'm nice, but they don't actually know who I really am. He says that I am hopeless at certain tasks, including catching public transport and waking up. He says I am very unhealthy. We argue when I put salt on my food or sugar in my tea. I made a joke recently where I pointed at a couple that were being really cute in public and I sarcastically said, which I regret, that it would be nice if we were like that. He got upset and said that he would rather kill himself than be with me. He stormed in today and said, get up, get up, but I was tired and I hadn't fallen asleep till 3am. It makes it really hard to do day-to-day -day tasks because I don't want to be yelled at or punished. I don't want to have to argue all the time. He told me I wasn't allowed to have a coat the other day until I went for a run. And then a few days later, he bought himself a vanilla coat and I was frustrated. This sounds so stupid. And so the time eventually came. Paul and I had our first argument. We were sitting in the car on Nicholson Street discussing my recent mental health plan which involved lots of therapy. I had entertained the idea of starting medication again to manage my anxiety with more ease. Paul, not knowing the intricacies of SSRIs and what it means to be on antidepressants, made a claim that I didn't need it, that it would suppress me and my creativity and my spark in ways that he didn't think were worth it. I protested. But then something strange happened. He didn't insult me. He didn't raise his hands in the air and furiously start yelling or telling me off for something absurd. He didn't roll his eyes and shuffle uncomfortably in his seat. He didn't even raise his voice. In fact, he listened. And we got out of the car and we laughed and we watched an episode of Orange is the New Black and he apologized and he put on some microwavable popcorn and nothing at all changed. We still loved each other. Nobody was penalized. And it was then that I learned that the abuse I had experienced with Theo wasn't the product of a petty argument between two lovers. In fact, it wasn't that at all. His hatred bled into everything else. Staining the fabric of our communication, making something as trivial as waking up at the wrong hour a battlefield, or spending too much time applying mascara synonymous with taking up arms with crying in trenches. When Paul and I argue, we argue like kids, tired, sooty, and if we looked at each other in the eye long enough after disagreeing on what film we want to watch, one of us is bound to start giggling. And sometimes, we even giggle about it over a Coke or two.
During this period, I have just started a new job, one that will support me while I freelance, drafting articles and chasing up emails and trying to forget when editors don't respond or do and say things like, Hi Madison, thank you for sending this our way. Unfortunately, it's not right for us. Good luck finding it a home. This new job is different to anything I've ever done before and I take great pride in it. I work at a local nursery, a plant store where I'm surrounded by carefree people and overflowing ivy and root-bound calatheas and monstrous monsteras to say the least. There is something comforting about being trusted to keep things alive, to keep things going, flourishing, growing and developing, new leaves and roots and tendrils. Every few days I walk to work from my Collingwood home, waving to Kasun as I pass, listening to Triple R through my headphones, sure to bump it to somebody, anybody I know. And then I do. I bump into Neil. Before I start telling you about Neil, I need it to be known. I like Neil. I think I even understand the complexities of his situation, of how he ended up shouldering apologies that weren't meant to come from him, listening to my candid frustrations to the time I once called him and his girlfriend in the middle of the night and demanded, I know that they know, that Theo could be awful, that the things he did weren't right. Neil is Theo's best friend, and breaking up with Theo meant breaking up with Neil. It's amicable, friendly even. He wears a smile from ear to ear and I do too, accompanied by nervous laughter and shuffling feet, a kind of I have somewhere to be that isn't here gesture. So the two of us walk in our respective directions and I suddenly feel exposed, red raw, unable to hide. Deep down a part of me thought that my new life was just that, something fresh, a thing that hatched from something ugly, a new frond of a dying plant. But I was sure that Neil could see me for all of my tendrils, especially the ugly ones, the ones with scorched edges. He could trace my waterlogged roots. No amount of powdery fertilizer could hide the stench of once upon a time neglect. I wanted to run, to scream, to bury myself in the soil. I get to work and tell my boss, who compassionately asks me if I need time, some fresh air, something to munch on, a cigarette even. The air around me is fresh, I want to say. It's me that feels stale, worn, a product of my past. The thing is, besides his family, many of the people in Theo's life did not acknowledge what happened. I was there one minute, gone the next, despite spending nearly three years sitting on back porches with them, laughing jovially at parties together, taking road trips up north to some quiet ocean opening. Their silence now was palpable, obvious, ugly. I didn't want to entertain the question, but it loomed into my head and refused to leave. The question being, do they believe me? They had taken a side that was easier for them, but harder for me. There was no accountability as far as I was aware. People I had spent days with, months with, years with, hadn't thought to check in, to accept my version of events as true, but still with a smile and a pat on the back in a crowded Fitzroy street, expected everything to be normal. But days passed and I eventually stopped caring. In fact, I went on somewhat of a deleting spree. 
erasing these once upon a time folks from my life, wanting to avoid that red rawness that Neil had evoked in me. And during this, I discovered something. Theo had a new girlfriend. I want to take you back now, just for a moment. I want to introduce you to 16-year-old Madison who exchanged USBs full of alternative folk traps and angsty surfy tunes with the dreamiest boy. The same one she asked to formal in year 11, the same one she fumbled around with in the back of his car, next to a surfboard and a sandy towel while the fuzzy ambience of Jose Gonzalez seeped out of the radio. A boy with long soft hair and long soft limbs and a curiosity 16-year-old Madison adored. When I think of him, I think of marine salt on skin, of sun-kissed cheeks, of tender floundering love. Warm, hot first love that warms the body like the Australian sun determined to dribble through an open window. Of throbbing heartache when it eventually ended. We grew apart as kids do, myself hanging on more so than him, but he was ready to explore his surroundings, to grow and to learn. And a year later, with that comes an Instagram post of him and the most gorgeous woman, sparkly and drunk, soaking up the echo of ambient music and secondhand smoke at a festival. His new girlfriend. I thought I'd feel worse when I saw the two of them together. But I was happy for him. I knew the sort of love he had to give. In fact, I knew it well. But knowing that Theo had a new girlfriend sparked a different kind of feeling to that one. A different kind of response. It meant two things, perhaps as unpleasant as each other. The first was that the cycle of abuse had continued and before long should be bolted beneath his grip and told off for being human, for being not good enough or attractive enough or plainly enough. The thought of it continuing past me, after me, made me feel lost and desperate to intervene, to warn her. But there was also another possibility, that his hate stopped with me, that with her he'd be kind, generous, willing to open up and evolve with love or at least deep, deep affection. And that meant something just as terrifying. That meant that there was something unique in me that he hated, something he felt he needed to punish, to squash, to ruin. In an article I wrote at the time, I concluded it with this. It may be unrealistic, but a part of me hopes that the abuse did stop with me that I was the first and last to bear his wrath. That, in our time together, I collected all of his anger in my hands and there's simply nothing left, nothing left to douse her with. I hope for her sake that I did. I wasn't really sure how to end this episode, to be honest. I had a few different endings floating about in my mind, but none seemed sufficient enough. But there's something I want to say that I haven't yet. Somebody I want to speak to of whom I never got the chance. So, here goes. To the woman he met after me, and the women he may meet after you, if you're listening, I just want to say, 
It could be a sideways glance that makes you feel that familiar yucky mass in your stomach. It could be an eye roll or a hurried frustrated pace because it took you too long to tie up your shoelaces or to finish your dinner or to find his joke funny. It could be a gesture more obvious, a question like, when did you become such a bitch or when did you put on weight or it could skip straight to a claim. Something naked, something conspicuous, just bitch, just cunt, just dumb, just whatever else pops into his mind at the time. It could be nothing, and I hope that it's nothing. But if it's not, and if you feel that gross syrupy blanket of loathing and hurt and you don't know why, just know that I do, and that I'm sorry, and that I will always, always believe you. There's a plant I have on my bookshelf as we speak. I carelessly pressed it up against a brightly lit window on one of those hot days recently and it curled and weakened in the heat. I see it for all that it is. And that's a product of my neglect. But I also see its willingness, its hope to survive. I have moved it since, hoping it recovers in time. And you know what? I know that it will, with the right light and water. Trauma is like that. A bit mathematical at times, something of a ratio, of an equation. And this bit's for you, Neil. If we live in a world where if we put certain things under the hot sun, they'll burn and shrivel. Rather than assuming they are weak, we need to look around first. We need to find ways to create more shade, to draw the blinds to let her grow. I want to thank the generous and unbelievably special women who have been reaching out during the making of this podcast, sharing their stories with me. You are all so strong and it is such an honour to feel heard by you and to hear you. I'm truly honoured and I mean that. If you have a story you want to share, Visit www.tenderpodcast.tumblr.com and shoot me an email. Tell me about your growth, about where you are, about where you're going. It all counts. Thank you as well for listening. I'm your host, Madison Griffiths. Now, next time on Tender. Two becomes three. And Paul and I end up, strangely enough, with a four-legged son named Phil. And I am freaking out. Also, the Facebook on this day function throws a spanner in the works and tries to convince me through digital nostalgia that things weren't as bad as I thought they were. And I entertain the idea of reaching out, hunting for that apology I want so badly.